50 years ago, the first human stepped foot on a different world. Stop and think about that for a moment. Up until that point, every footstep ever taken was confined to, as what Carl Sagan called, a pale blue dot, a small planet in the corner of the cosmos, on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. When Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon, it looked like all of that might change. Children and lovers of space alike dreamed of a future where we would colonize the moon and then Mars, traveling in ever-expanding circles outward, truly making our home among the stars. But then something happened. Going to space is hard, really hard. Some people forgot that dream. We let our fears get in the way. Only 12 people have ever walked on the moon. And at the end of the space race, interest in going to the moon slowed. In 2011, the space shuttle program for the United States ended. But some people still remember that dream. Engineers and scientists in the government, eccentric millionaires, and children who dream of one day walking on Mars. Today, our voyages into space haven't ended. They're just different. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, philosophy, ethics, culture, history, and the future. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Jim Bell. I'm a professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. I'm an astronomer, planetary scientist, and I am the president of the Planetary Society. Things are very different now. How we think about space has changed. It's no longer a race in the way it used to be. Now, th things have changed enormously. Um, I think the biggest change is that space, especially near-Earth space, or low Earth orbit, space is now just a part of our everyday lives, part of our economy, a part of the global geopolitical infrastructure. It's not really a race to get there anymore, like, like it used to be. It's more a race to make money there, stay there, build new things there, innovate there. When we first went to the moon, Things were black and white. It was the United States versus the Soviet Union. Now there's a host of other countries who have space programs or who have been to space. France, China, the UK, India, Japan, Israel, Iran, and North Korea. But perhaps one of the fundamental differences between now and 50 years ago is that private enterprises are involved, more so than they have ever been before. They're not just making the parts for the space shuttle, they're sending up spacecrafts themselves. There are companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX, and they're fundamentally changing how we think and interact with our space environment. Certainly, private enterprise has always been involved in space exploration, space travel, space business, you know, going back to the, the earliest telecommunications satellites launched into orbit, or even thinking about, you know, the Apollo lunar missions built by commercial contractors for NASA, uh, many of the early space probes built by commercial contractors for NASA and other space agencies. So, you know, aerospace industry has always been part of space exploration. I think what's different today is that there's a large number of sort of smaller 
more entrepreneurial aerospace companies that have come along, many of which, of course, are led by famous billionaires or other eccentric individuals. And, uh, and, and that's relatively new. It's not just the traditional uh, you know, big aerospace companies that are doing this, but a lot of, a lot of new players. And those, those new players in the game are motivated by different things, some motivated by profit, like, a, like most businesses are, others motivated by the desire to move our species forward in varieties of different ways. I think that they've, they've garnered a lot of public interest because you know, many young people see these new space, so-called new space companies as taking more risks, working on more cutting edge projects than NASA or other traditional space agencies. It's a big draw. There's lots of cool projects going on. There's lots of excitement. Governments remain the biggest customers for many of these new space companies, most of these new space companies. A few of them are trying to make money on their own and they're they haven't fully demonstrated success yet, but some of them, like uh, like SpaceX, for example, it's you know widely a misconception that's widely held is that uh, you know Elon Musk is spending his own money to launch rockets, and in fact, he's getting hundreds of millions of dollars of his company is getting hundreds of millions of dollars of, of taxpayer-funded money from NASA that they had to propose to competitively and win to launch cargo up to the space station and eventually people. Other aerospace companies have won such contracts from the government. Um, others, like uh, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos, has sunk a bunch of his own personal money into this. But even they will be going after large sums of government funding for delivering equipment and maybe eventually people to the moon. Really, it's the government is still driving a lot of this, not, and not just in the U.S., around the world, in Europe, Japan, Russia, elsewhere. And I think it's because there's really no business model for making a profit to explore in space. At least that hasn't been demonstrated yet. The only way to make money in space so far has been through communication satellites, which is the vast majority of the market. Going to Mars, going to explore the moon, none of those are going to make a company any money unless someone else comes along like the government that is interested in exploring and educating and uh, discovering, you know, that kind of thing. 50 years ago, the goal was simple. Get to the moon. Beat the Russians. But with new corporations entering the game, what is their motivation? Like Jim said, corporations and companies generally operate under a very simple premise. Make money. A corporation with no viable business model will have its stock value fall, lose investors, and eventually will lose money. Absolutely. That's exactly the question. How, what is the business? Is there a business model to make money in space? And, and again, aside from communication satellites, nobody has demonstrated yet. And that is uh, an obstacle to investors and entrepreneurs getting involved and, and funding these companies to get started and get going. I think uh, that there are possibilities. And I think that there is, in fact, one specific business model that I am certain will work great in space, and that is tourism. You know, tourism is a spectacular business model on the earth. You need the infrastructure, you need the places for, you know, the transportation system, you need the places for people to stay and the hotels and restaurants, you need entertainment, national parks, whatever. I think that exact model that works on the earth that makes enormous amounts of money for many companies on the earth 
can be applied to space. And I think it will be in the decades and centuries ahead as that infrastructure comes along, as it gets less expensive to launch. But other than that, I have a hard time personally seeing what other business models, you know, might exist. And asteroid mining, maybe, you know, certainly water, uh, finding water in the solar system for uh, people, explorers, astronauts, tourists is, is going to be uh, really critical because you can't just ship it all from the earth. Precious metals, maybe, maybe not, you know, it would you know, like crash the market on the earth that destroys your business model. So there has to be a lot of economic thought about that. And look, I'm not an economist, you know, I'm a geologist. I, I like to pound rocks with a hammer and that kind of stuff. Um, so, so I, you know, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but to me, it's, it's really not obvious how these companies are going to make money, uh, at least in the near term, but I can think of longer term solutions. Space tourism sounds like a great way to make money. I'm definitely on board. I, for one, would love to spend my 50th wedding anniversary on a tour of the rings of Saturn, or visiting the underground oceans of Enceladus. Okay, maybe that's a bit overly optimistic. Right now, I could buy a ticket into space for a few million dollars. Maybe if I'm lucky, a quarter of a million. Still, it's a bit out of my price range. But if I'm willing to wait a few decades, or even a century, what options would I have? Uh, <laughs> I've written a whole book about this called The Ultimate Interplanetary Travel Guide, where I uh, speculate what what tourist opportunities are going to be out there in a few hundred years from now. I don't know whether I got the time scale right. It could be this, this kind of thing that I speculate on could start in the next few decades. It could take a few centuries. It just all depends upon the success of current technology innovators and in bringing down the price of getting into space, the cost of launch, et cetera. But certainly low earth orbit is the easiest place to get to, uh, the least expensive place to get to. And uh, the easiest place to set up an infrastructure, there's already a communications infrastructure, there's already an internet. Um, it, it's just a matter of maybe some of the big hotel companies, some of the big chains wanting to put a Hilton or a Marriott or a Sheraton or something up there, you know, in, the, in a space station like platform. Uh, but that'll be the first place people will go. You can already, like you said, you can already go to the space station if you're $20 million, you know, you want to give your $20 million to the Russians or whatever they're charging these days, you can go. And a, a small number, tiny number of people have gone. Certainly uh, SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and others are talking about and making plans to send tourists into low Earth orbit. So th those opportunities are going to start becoming more common. They will be high end. I predict for quite some time, but there is a you know a tiny fraction of the people in the world who could afford high end adventure tourism like this. You know to take to take your family on an around the world cruise, you could easily drop a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand uh, dollars. Especially if you wanted to stop in Antarctica or some exotic place that's hard to get to. Uh, and there are people who can afford that. Not a lot of people. And this is exactly the same thing that happened 100 years ago with the airline industry. The airline industry was this crazy, dangerous thing that only the rich could afford. And eventually, over time, you know, skimming the low-hanging fruit of, of rich folks and government investment, it became safer and much more affordable. And now it's routine, essentially, to travel around the world by airplane. I think it's easy to predict 
the same exact thing will happen for space lines and space travel. Is it going to take 10 years? No, it's much more than 10 years. Is it going to take a thousand years? Probably less than a thousand years. It's decades to, I think, a few centuries until we get there. So talking about various corporations going into space. So one thing that I like to think about is maybe the ethical questions that has to be associated with this. So for example, one of them is with people putting more satellites in space, who's responsible for cleaning up all the junk that's in orbit? Or what about doing invasive things like you mentioned, asteroid mining? Who has the right to mine an asteroid? Who has the right to divert asteroids? Um, and he, who even has the right to set up colonies and take resources from places like the moon or Mars? So when corporations are being added into the mix along with world governments, what do you think about this? Like, Who do you think should be taking responsibility? Should we make international space laws to deal with these kind of issues? Yeah. So, I mean, there already are international space laws, United Nations and approved treaties that the major nations of the world have have signed on to or, or, or are effectively adhering to. Uh, the problem is that those treaties were made mostly in the 1960s and um, they applied to a world where governments were the, were the actors doing this kind of work, not companies. And so the existing laws and treaties and protocols don't really address what we're running into now. And so there's now an enormous amount of interest in revisiting those uh, agreements, treaties, protocols. Um, some of that is happening at the, the level of the UN. Others, other kinds of Thinking in this area is happening between space agencies and among space agencies themselves. Um, uh, but we are kind of in a little bit of a purgatory right now of having laws that are archaic, basically kind of like law of the sea kind of laws and stating that, you know, no, nobody can own uh, territory off the earth. Okay. What if you, what if you just take a rock and bring it back to the earth set? Do you own it? Do you have a right to make money off of that? Um, whose rock was it? What if somebody gets hurt extracting that rock? Who gets sued? You know, I mean, the lawyers are going to have to get involved. The politicians are going to have to get involved. The, the corporations themselves and the governments are, are going to have to get involved. And everybody knows this. And they're, they're kind of the, the rumblings of, you know, initial workshops and white papers and things like that being put together uh, at the governmental level, at the level of, you know, many of the, the commercial advocacy organizations and regulatory organizations around the world. Um, but sort of within the next five to 10 years, a, a really new framework of space law, rights, all that kind of stuff is going to have to get hammered out. And, uh, and, you know, there's so many players now. There's more than 60 space agencies around the world. And so it can't just be a set of laws that are favorable to NASA and the Europeans and the Japanese. You know, it has to be fair to the world. And uh, and so it's it's difficult. It's hard to get the world to agree on things, anything. And uh, and so it's going to take a lot of diplomacy and uh, economic arguments and legalistic arguments to to figure this all out. Now, you know, it was figured out for the oceans. It was figured out for air travel. So we'll figure it out for space travel. It's just going to take some time. Besides the government and besides corporations, there's another player in this new environment to get to space, and that's academia. The academic world is a for-profit entity, except the profit is 
knowledge, discoveries, education, you know, placement of students in great jobs, you know, that's our profit. Uh, And that works for us because that's, you know, that's how, what universities are charged to do. Uh, It doesn't work for companies. And so it, it makes it challenging, you know, having relationships with companies. But if, if the academic world respects the fact that the corporate world has a bottom line that's measured in dollars or euros or yen or whatever, and the corporate world has an understanding and respect for the fact that the academic world has a bottom line that's measured in degrees and research papers and patents and things like that, then, uh, then it, it turns out, you know, we, we can work together. And, uh, and so we've got an initiative at ASU, uh, called the space technology and science initiative. We call it new space. So, so I think that, you know, more and more the academic world is not just going to be the, the traditional, sit back, write research proposals, and hope the government trough remains full. More and more, we're going to have to be proactive and going after collaborations. You may not think about it, but space around Earth is anything but empty. There are over 20,000 known asteroids that are considered to be near-Earth asteroids. A near-Earth asteroid is one that is essentially sharing space with the Earth's orbit, being within 1.3 times the Earth-to-Sun distance. Many of these cross the orbit of the Earth, and collisions with near-Earth asteroids remain a very real threat to all of life on Earth. To counteract this threat, there are several different surveys associated with finding and tracking these objects, making sure that if one is to intercept the Earth, we know about it long in advance, perhaps far enough to do something about it. One of these programs is called NeoShare. Arizona State University and Lockheed are part of this program, which is a consortium of members that can each contribute a little bit of their own money to search for these asteroids. We, uh, in collaboration here at ASU, in collaboration with Lockheed, which is one of the traditional big aerospace companies, have decided to test the hypothesis that it's possible to do deep space robotic science missions without having to have a government necessarily be the dominant funder of the whole thing, like a NASA or an ESA. Our idea is to try to do a shared membership kind of model to run a deep space mission. This is very much the same way the European Space Agency works. European Space Agency is a consortium of something like 19 countries, each of which pays dues into a central governing agency of the European Space Agency, they all the dues come together, they add up to much more money than any of the company, the countries have individually. And so they can do amazing deep space missions. And so our idea was to try to do this on a smaller scale. Can we do a more modest, but important scientific missions that aren't getting done by NASA or the Europeans or others with a consortium of members? And, you know, like I said earlier, there's 60 space agencies around the world. And they don't have NASA-sized budgets, but they've got decent amounts of money, tens, fives, tens of millions of dollars to uh, potentially invest in something like this. And they can't get in on the big missions with NASA or ESA many times because they have to compete and they don't have any experience. And so they won't win. We're going to try to do it for deep space. Through a nonprofit that, that we spun off of ASU, and the nonprofit's called the Milo Space Science Institute. So we form a nonprofit, try to pull a consortium together, and we had to come up with an initial mission to test this hypothesis, test this model. And the initial mission is NeoShare, Near Earth Object Share. And the idea is that we would take uh, one, a single launch, relatively modest 
uh, small launch vehicle and launched six small sats to fly past, very close past, uh, up to 10 near-Earth asteroids. These are objects, uh, mostly rocky, stony, metallic, some of them icy, that come close to the Earth. There's a population of more than 20,000 of them that are known now that have orbits that kind of come close to the Earth. Many of them pass between the Earth and the Moon. You read about them in the newspapers or online every couple of months. Oh, big you know, football field-sized rock passed between the Earth and the Moon, etc. So they come to us. Of these 20,000 of them, they come to us. And uh, a few thousand of them are, so maybe 10% of them are are what are called potentially hazardous asteroids, meaning that uh, none of them are going to hit the Earth of these 20,000. Zero uh, are known to be on impact trajectories with the Earth. So that's good news. But about 10% of them uh, could someday be on impact trajectories because the orbits will get tweaked by the Earth or the Moon or by Mars or by Venus. And you can't predict that tweaking very far in the future, more than centuries into the future. And so uh, so they need to be watched. They need to be monitored. So uh, it turns out, because there's so many of these that come swinging by the Earth all the time, or the Earth goes swinging by them, at any given day, you launch a rocket uh, into the vicinity of the Earth, like past the, uh, maybe just past the moon, not too far from the Earth, uh, you could encounter up to 100 of these with a flyby vehicle, a simple little spacecraft, with some cameras and spectrometers, simple instruments just to fly close. And so we're going to try to pick a time to launch, hopefully in about 2023, where we can get, like I say, about 10 of them that sample the diversity of these 20,000 known objects. And if we're going to have to think someday about deflecting an asteroid that someday we discover is on a collision course with the Earth, and it's only a matter of time, then we need to know what they're made of. Are they, are they solid you know, masses of rock? Are they fluffy aggregates? Are they rubble piles? Because the way that you could deflect or destroy or you know, otherwise mitigate uh, a civilization-ending impact depends a lot on what they're made of and how, how they're put together. So part of, part of NeoShare is, is planetary defense figuring out what this population is like. And part of NeoShare is just pure science, exploration, discovery. These are samples of asteroids from all over the solar system. Most in the main belt, most come from the main belt between Mars and Jupiter, but many, many come from farther out. Some come from closer in. And, uh, and so it's just part of the taking the census of our solar system. One of the big corporations playing a role in the jump to space is Blue Origin, This company envisions a future where people are living and working in space. And recently, they even announced that they are working on a lunar lander. That means in about 2024, a corporation is planning on sending humans back to the moon. Jim and ASU are hoping to work with Blue Origin to send scientific payloads there as well. Blue Origin is is one of the companies that we've uh, had a relationship with for several years. Um, some of our uh, senior engineering capstone students have uh, launched a, some payload experiments on one of their recent rockets, the suborbital rockets. Great way to teach students about you know how to build a spacecraft and all of the different complexities that are involved in the engineering and the software and the power systems and the, uh, commanding and all that kind of stuff. And because of those connections, partly, uh, when they started thinking about doing their lunar landers, we ha- had some sort of behind-the-scenes private conversations uh, with with some of their folks 
about uh, you know what are the kinds of of payloads or missions that we would want to do because you know we have a lot of expertise in lunar science and planetary science orbiters and landers and rovers and things like that here at ASU and uh, so if we could provide them with some examples of the kinds of instrumentation scientific measurements mission objectives science goals that we would be interested in they could then make sure that what they were planning to to build and pitch to NASA uh, and other space agencies would be something that the the scientific community would be interested in. Uh, what we don't have because we're a nonprofit university is lots of money, uh, and it you know it's not going to be cheap. Uh, missions to deep space cost significant amounts of money because they have a lot of redundancy. They have components that have to be built to survive you know pretty violent launch environments or violent or extreme environments once at, at their planetary destination two things need to happen you know they need to get paid because they're a company and we need to get money to pay for those services whether that's delivery to the surface or operations on the surface or orbit or whatever we have traditionally got that money through the government through nasa or other space agencies and so what what needs to happen next which which is happening is that companies like blue origin and others are being contracted by nasa to provide these services that is so nasa is becoming a paying customer and so part of part of that funding which comes from you and me it's our part of our tax dollars at work so we will have to uh, write proposals and, and pitch our ideas to nasa NASA loves it because, you know, there's plenty of ideas, but not enough funding in the traditional programs to go around. And so they create these innovative new programs with commercial partnerships. And that's very attractive to Congress because it helps create jobs and high tech jobs and support industries and high tech places. Our future in space is not stagnant. Corporations, academia, and the government are all working together, and they all have a role to play. With so many people putting their brains together, perhaps it isn't so unrealistic to start planning my trip to the rings of Saturn. Maybe. But if nothing else, perhaps going back to the moon, or even Mars, is in our near future. It's been 50 years since the first human stepped foot on the moon, and the world paused as we all watched Neil Armstrong take that step and say those famous words we still remember so well. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Maybe one day, and maybe one day soon, our children, or maybe even us ourselves, will gather around our televisions, our computers, or our augmented reality entertainment centers and watch with bated breath as the first person steps foot on the dusty red sands of Mars. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com. We're going on a short hiatus for the month of August, but we'll be back in the beginning of September with more episodes. In the meantime, check us out on Twitter, on Facebook, or on Patreon. Thanks again for joining us and for listening, and we'll see you in one month with new episodes. Some of the background music you hear is produced by me. Others are clips from Route 17 by Dijol featuring Danilo Pirates. Sun Goodbye by Alex featuring The Dice. Space MTV by Komiku. The Royal Vagabond by Jocker's Dance Orchestra. 
and Urbana Metronica, the Wu Ye mix, by Spinning Merkaba, featuring Marusk, Jerris, Cecil, and Alex Barroza. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.